Welcome to FPC Meridian's Sermon Podcast. Today, Dr. Rhett Payne continues his series in the Book of Esther. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of His Word. Now let's begin. We're in the Book of Esther. This is Esther chapter 8. As we're in the seventh part in the series, and please uh, take your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can turn to page 497 and 498 in the Pew Bible that's in front of you. This is a a beautiful story of the providence of God on display, and uh, we will read the entire chapter of chapter 8. My sources include Mervyn Brenneman's The New American Commentary on Esther, Ian DeGuid's commentary on Esther, Derek Prime's commentary in a book called Unspoken Lessons About the Unseen God, and classic commentary from uh, Kyle and Delich, C.F. Kyle and F. Delich. Uh, on the book of Esther. Esther chapter 8, verse 1. Stand with me, please, for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of God. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatching that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. And there should probably be a pause there. As he thought, Now write another decree in the king's name and behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. 
A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, riding the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai the king's, left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. And thank you as we read this word and as we study this word. Your presence is here with us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you, O Holy Spirit, for being here and for what you will teach us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. The title of the message is, The Tables Turned. It's a catchphrase in which whatever the situation is, the situation has changed giving the advantage to the party who had previously been at a disadvantage. In the 1997 film Contact, Dr. Ellie Arroway, played by Jodie Foster, is a radio astronomer trying to fulfill a lifelong quest to discover life on other worlds. The death of her parents, especially the death of her father when she was young, contributed to her rejection of God and to her staunch atheism. Her love interest in the film is religious scholar Palma Joyce, played by Matthew McConaughey. Ellie challenges Palmer with this question. Is there an all-powerful, mysterious God that created the universe but left us no proof of his existence? Or is there simply no God and we created him so we wouldn't feel so alone? Palmer responds, Did you love your father? Ellie answers, yes, very much. Prove it. And at that point, Ellie, before she can even respond, they're interrupted. Later in the film, radio telescopes pick up a message from space, a plan to build a machine to transport one person to make contact with the alien beings. Of course, after a series of events and the machine is built, Ellie is the one chosen to go. She is transported through a a wormhole, which is a tunnel through space and time. She finds herself on a beach where an alien being appears to her, having taken the form of her late father, so that she would, I guess, feel more comfortable. The alien being tells her that they are also searching for the meaning of life, and that while man is not ready to join the other alien civilizations, this is the first small step. She's then transported back to the machine and to Earth, but in real time, Mission Control had not observed her to be gone at all. With no proof of this fantastic experience that she had, she must convince the world and an international review panel that she has experienced something that's very real. 
One of the panel members asked her, so should we take this all on faith? So the tables have been turned for her. And now she must explain the need for faith. And so she says, I had an experience I cannot prove. I can't even explain it, but everything that I know as a human being, everything that I am tells me that it was real. I was part of something wonderful, something that changed me forever. A vision of the universe that tells us undeniably how tiny and insignificant and how rare and precious we all are. A vision that tells us we belong to something that is greater than ourselves. That we are not, that none of us are alone. I wish I could share that. I wish that everyone, if even for one moment, could feel that awe and humility and hope. Sounds a little bit like a Christian trying to explain to an atheist or an agnostic about the reality of faith in God. The reality of Jesus Christ and all that he's done on this cross for us. You know, scripture makes it clear that our hope is in the God whose eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen in the creation of the world around us. I hope you take time every once in a while to just admire God's handiwork. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. God is saying the design and the complexity of nature makes it obvious that He exists. But hard hearts often refuse to accept anything. That might make them accountable to a creator God. And so let's look at three lessons this morning in our our text in Esther. And the first lesson being this. The tables have been turned for Esther and Mordecai. As our story continues, Haman, remember he's the enemy of the story. Haman has been impaled. He's been hanged, as it says in some versions, We found that out in chapter 5 about the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. And Mordecai is the uncle or the cousin, really a father figure to Esther. And so there's definitely a turning of the tables when Haman had this pole set up to kill Mordecai because he hated him simply because he was a Jew. And yet it's Haman the one that gets impaled on the pole. Impalement is foreign to us. We hear about crucifixion all the time because of the cross that we glory in because of what Jesus did for us on that cross. But we don't hear a lot about impalement, which according to the Greek historian Herodotus, impalement was a Persian punishment. And so here we are in this story in the 5th century B.C., and it was a gruesome punishment. A 75-foot tree is set up by Haman to eventually display Mordecai's body for all to see. And the image of impalement suggests someone thrust down upon a stake so that the stake goes through the body and the body is left to die in agony. It's a horrible death. And as it turned out, it was Haman's body that was hung or put out for display for all to see. Such incredible irony in this story. And that's not all. As we read in verse 1, the king gives the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to the Jewish queen, Esther. And since Haman was a traitor, his his entire estate 
automatically reverted to the crown. Kind of reminds me of Proverbs 13, verse 22. It says, a good person, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So the king gave to Esther the estate of Haman, maybe as a way to compensate for her suffering. And then Esther appointed Mordecai to watch over the estate on her behalf, which is a beautiful gesture on her behalf. And finally, Esther comes clean, revealing not only her own nationality, as we learned last week, but also the nationality of her relative, Mordecai the Jew. And then, it seems, revealing the truth about Mordecai's heritage only served to help Mordecai. We read next that the king, after having Haman impaled, retrieved his signet ring from Haman, and in our text, he gave it to Mordecai. I mean, maybe she should have told the king about this earlier. Maybe things would have turned better for Mordecai and Esther if she had been open earlier. I mean, who knows? But the main thing to remember is this was a day of a complete turnaround from what was intended. The Jews were prepared to face the coming days as days of what? Days of judgment. Days of judgment. Instead, it turned out to be a day of rewards. Haman's reward was the gallows, gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai's impalement. Mordecai was also rewarded with the possessions that Haman had reserved for himself. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is still in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is actually a verse or two that unbelievers know very well. Unbelievers know this verse very, very well. And we'll use it against you sometimes. <laughs> if you ever make a comment about some position that you hold from the scriptures, they might throw up this verse. Matthew 7 verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Haman could have profited from that verse, couldn't he? I mean, just think if Haman had not been so hateful toward Mordecai. Just think if he did not allow that bitterness to take root in his heart. And so while you're looking at that, turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it, it says in Hebrews 12, 15. See to it. That, that means you're supposed to see to it. By the grace of God, you are supposed to see to it. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So, who is, it in, who is it in you that you deal with bitterness toward? Who do you struggle to let go of that bitterness? Is, is there anyone? There may not be, but most likely, with a crowd like this, there's a number of us who have bitterness toward someone. And Scripture is very clear. Be careful, because that bitter root... That bitterness can become a root in you 
that grows up to cause trouble and defile many. In other words, it hurts a lot of people. Haman hurt his whole family. Think about that. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, hurt his whole family, as we'll learn next time. He hurt his future. He was number two in all of Persia. And then he wasn't because of hatred, because of bigotry. He hated a group of people. He hated Mordecai the Jew, but he hated a group of people just because they were not like him. Now, we don't know how much time had elapsed in our story, but we do know that there were only two months and ten days between the edict that Haman made, and that means we have to go back to chapter 3, verse 7 of Esther, and this new edict in chapter 8, verse 9. Two months and ten days. That's not a lot of time. I mean, you know, we started summer just about two months and ten days ago, right? Well, you know, not technically, but it felt like summer. That wasn't that long ago, was it? Which is a reminder to us, don't, don't give up when, when things aren't going like you expect them to go. Don't give up. It can turn. You never know what God can and will do on your behalf. Too many of us give up too soon. Too many of us throw in the towel without remembering the example of Esther. And so remember Esther, this young girl who was put in a position by God for such a time as this. Esther 4.14, which is the verse of the book of Esther. Who knows, Mordecai said to her, who knows but that you have come to your royal position as queen for such a time as this. And Esther took that as a word from God, and she acted on that, and she put her life on the line to save her people. And who knows but that you, who knows but that you have come to this point in your life, whatever you're facing, that God put you there for such a time as this. So the tables turned for Esther and Mordecai. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is the tables turned for the Jews. Okay, we've heard a lot of good news, but we need to remember the Jews still have a serious problem. What is that serious problem? Well, Haman's out of the picture, so he was a problem. But his plan, the plan of Haman, is still in effect. Alright, so the Jews have a problem. So remember the king had decreed that all Jews were to be killed. And he didn't really know it was the Jews. He just said a certain people that Haman had put before him. And not even the king can rescind his own decree. So at this point in the story, we find Esther prostrating herself, falling at the king's feet once again, sobbing and pleading with him to find a way to save her people, the Jews. And this action on the part of the queen is pretty similar to the way that Haman the Agagite threw himself at the queen, begging in a similar fashion, so definite irony there. But the difference is, Haman was pleading for what? Haman was pleading for his own life. Esther's pleading for whom? For her people, the Jews. She's not pleading for her life. She's pleading for the life of her people, the Jews. Verse 5, it says, If it pleases the king, look at this in verse 5. If it pleases the king, she said, And if he regards me with favor, and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, And then she goes on to make a request. So once again, like we saw last week, in four different ways this week, Esther says what? 
If you really love me, if you really love me, there's no asking the king to do the right thing or to remove the injustice from her people, which tells us right and wrong, justice and injustice really made no difference to the king. He wasn't that kind of guy. The only thing that would register with the king was something that appealed to his own self-interest, which was, if you really love me and if you really want me happy, you will do what I ask. The king tells Esther and Mordecai in verse 7, Look, since Haman attacked the Jews, I took him out, I had him impaled, I've given you his estate, and it almost seems like he's saying, well, what, what more can I do for you? I've done a lot for you, so what more can I do? And men, have you ever said something like that to your wife? Only to get the stare? The stare that says, well, I'll tell you what else you can do. (laughs) Esther gives the king the stare, and before you know it, in verse 8, he comes up with an idea. And that's why I said there was a pause when I was reading the text. Now, write another decree in the king's name. In behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Great idea. Mordecai does just that, and he comes up with a new decree because he possessed the king's signet ring. It would also become irrevocable law. The law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. So this new law allowed the Jews in every city to gather together to fight and protect themselves. So look at verse 11. They were given authority to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children. And they were also given the right to plunder the property of their enemies. So you see what's happening? By this new decree, the Jews were being given permission to retaliate in the manner planned by Haman against them. And only one day was given for these things to be done. Only one day. The same day that Haman had chosen for the execution of all the Jews. Look at verse 12. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. This new edict was a life-saving decree, and messengers rode out to deliver the message as quickly as possible. Now, the message was not just to the people of Susa. You, you heard in the, in the text how many provinces there were, and there are Jews all over the province. And so, they, they selected fast horses... Under the king, they were trained to be fast, and they had to go as far as, according to the experts, 2,000 miles to get the word out that there's a new edict, and the Jews are not going to be annihilated, and if anybody tries to annihilate the Jews, then they can fight back. It's also important to be sure we understand what's happening here. Mordecai's edict gave the Jews the right to plunder their defeated enemies. To take, to steal from their enemies. Although we'll see next time, the Jews chose not to do that. Yet this was a holy war. So actually the spoils of war were not theirs to take. 
And we'll talk more about that next time. So the first lesson, the tables turned for Esther and Mordecai. The second lesson, the tables turned for the Jews. And then the third and final lesson, the tables turned by God. The tables turned by God. So look at verse 15 of chapter 8. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Now, many of you have been with me the whole summer as we've studied this. I want you to think back to the early days when things were really bad for Mordecai, and he was clothed in what? Sackcloth. Sackcloth and ashes. And now his clothing is a lot different. You remember that that's when we knew that the Jews were in trouble. Well, now Mordecai is dressed in in purple, symbolized that the Jews were victorious. His clothes show his status has changed. I mean, what a difference a day makes, right? The people are celebrating. Verse 16 says the Jews, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness, joy, gladness, and honor. And even conversions. Verse 17 says, And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. The fear of the Jews was because of the Jews' God. And it had a way of getting into people's heads. C.F. Kyle says that most of those who became Jews must have done it out of conviction of the truth of the Jewish religion. The people had to notice the way the Jews' trust in God had been rewarded, especially when they compared the Jews' faith to the vanity and the misery of polytheism. And the turn of events in favor of the Jewish people had to be a witness to the unbelieving people around them. And so the parallel for the story in us, for us, is this. As Christians, our rejoicing over what God has done for us in Jesus Christ ought to more than match... The rejoicing in our text. So those 5th century Jews in Persia, they rejoiced because they were free. They rejoiced because this, this horrible thing that was going to be done to them was now revoked. It was now different. And now they had to get the word out and there was a sense of rejoicing and urgency to get the word out, to get the message out. So that they knew that they could fight back if they were attacked. Well, flip that over to the gospel. We ought to feel a sense of urgency about the good news of the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel is so good. So incredible. Just like they sent out messengers to all, we should send out messengers continuously. We got a team going to Honduras this week. Because the message of the gospel is that important. Pray for that team as they go, leaving on the 25th. Pray that God uses them as they learn. It's a vision trip, but it's also a, a, a ministry that we support in a, in a huge way. The Micah Project in Honduras. We should feel such a sense of urgency that we want to get the gospel message out and do it with haste. Do it in a hurry. Tragically, there are men, women, boys and girls who give who live their lives looking to themselves rather than looking to the God of the Scriptures, the God that we know is the God of hope, the God who gives us joy, even in the midst of sorrow. 
God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to take our place. He did battle with the enemies of darkness for us. And, you know, you think about the Jews having to battle those that were trying to kill them. Fortunately for us, God's holy war, which you might hear that term occasionally, God's holy war is not something that we need to continue. And it's not because we are modern people that in these, you know, intelligent times we are beyond a holy war. No, we have abandoned holy war in its Old Testament form that you might read about from time to time because we live in a different era in the history of redemption. We live in the era of the outpouring of God's grace. The Mosaic era practice of holy war was a foreshadowing within history of the last judgment. It's a warning to men and women everywhere not to presume, not to presume on the mercy and the grace of God. There is still a judgment to come when Christ himself will go out dressed in a blood-stained robe as the rider on a white horse armed with a sharp sword to strike down the nations. So God's judgment can still be escaped. Thankfully, God does not always carry out his sentence immediately. God is patient with us. As the scripture says in Peter, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thankfully, when God did carry out his sentence for our sins, he did carry it out on his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The gospel is the great turning of the tables by God. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Please read it with me. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. In the midst of the flood, God rescued who? Noah and his family. Out of the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah, he rescued who? The family of Lot. Out of Jericho, he delivered the house of Rahab, the prostitute. And today he will rescue you. If you've never come to faith in Christ, if you've never put your faith and trust in the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he promises to rescue you. If you will come to him and turn from your sins and trust him for eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. We thank you that we were God's enemies, just like Haman. And maybe some of us still are. That we live in pursuit of ourselves and live completely and solely for ourselves. And yet while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the salvation that you have made possible for us who believe. And I pray for the one in this place today or the one or more in this place who has never placed their trust in you, Lord Jesus, for their eternal life. Would you, by your grace and mercy, by your Holy Spirit, would you touch their hearts 
and lead some in this place to turn from their sins, to repent and believe the gospel and embrace the gospel. That the one who was sinless took our sin upon himself. We love you and praise you for that, Lord Jesus. And pray that we might glory in the gospel today, glory in the cross, and experience the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord that is our strength. We praise you, Father God, through Jesus our Lord and Savior. Amen.